great to be here this morning. And I just want to say from the very beginning, if this goes well, then we're going to just give glory to God. If it goes poorly, blame Jim Hall. So, I'll be going that way. Where are you, Jim? Look, he's right, he's right over there. Just make note. Uh, and I really am I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, my wife and I started our, our young marriage, and I won't tell you what year, because I'm old, which makes me vain now, uh, in Garden Grove. Uh, and then we, and we went to Mission Field, to Indonesia, and uh, sent by a, a small church that Jim and Debbie were part of in uh, Irianjaya, Indonesia. And we spent about 20 years out there doing two New Testament translations, had an amazing time. Uh, in 2001, we came home. Uh, went to live in Seattle for a variety of reasons. Uh, and two years ago, we moved back to Orange County. So we were gone for about 32 years. Amazing. Well, we visited, of course, but uh, it's pretty cool just being back. And I lived for many years in Garden Grove, so it's, you know, it's like coming home for us. We got Chris Liu here. He's from Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, we work at the Seed Company, which is a organization that Wycliffe started, I don't know, roughly 15 years ago. And the whole purpose Wycliffe started the Seed Company was to start focusing on training and funding and equipping indigenous people to do Bible translation. So the organization said, you know, the world's changing so fast. So many people want to start Bible translation. We can't do it. Let's launch a new organization. You guys figure it out. So for Gloria and I, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was like it was like clay, unmolded clay, or you know, blank slate, and we got to run out. And uh, long story short, the seed company started its one thousandth, one thousandth new uh, New Testament translation project uh, last year in only fifteen years. For, for the Wycliffe, and I'm not ragging on the Wycliffe, but it took them sixty years to do their first one thousand. Sorry, Chris. Seed Company, 15 years. It's not because of, of us or anything else. It's the times we're living in. It's acceleration of God's completing his mission right now uh, like you wouldn't believe. It's an incredible time. So the first hour, we are going to go from Pentecost to 2016. Uh, the second hour, it's going to be more of an interactive time. We will talk about what's the amazing thing that's happening right now because we're seeing a huge shift. I, I, I'd say it's a 200-year shift. And what God's doing in missions right now. Uh, so we're going to cover that second hour. And I'll give you a few statistics and everything. Don't let that word scare you. You know, they're simple graphs. But we'll go fast. And then we're going to have more of an interactive time the second hour. You know, I want to talk with you guys. I want you to ask questions. Uh, I'm going to challenge you. You know, I'm going to ask you questions. So it's going to be interactive. So uh, don't let that scare you away. Please come back. <laughs> because you guys have to help us figure this out, too, moving forward. We're the church. It's not just a job of a couple experts. Uh, we're all experts. God's called us all into this. Every single one of us has a role and responsibility. So please do come back for that. I think you're really going to find it interesting. But first, we, need to just, uh, we just need to clear the air a little bit because uh, we want to make sure people understand what missions is. <laughs> Somebody uh, said, are you going to come wearing a pith helmet? Now, I know this church is pretty smart. You guys know it. That's not missions anymore. But there are a lot of people who still think Western missions looks like that. They really do. And it's not quite like that either. That's what it was when my wife and I went out. And uh, I'm not sure why these guys aren't wearing shirts. But 
notice the technology there. That's a tape recorder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, tape recorder. And a lot of people still think missions is this, going out to some bizarre area and looking at this, helping the savages, uh, you know, here at the gospel. And there are a few pockets on the earth that have some, but by and large, it's really more like this. Same country, by the way, Papua New Guinea. You know, that's what Papua New Guineans really look like these days. They put on the makeup for National Geographic and others, but uh, when, they're, when the, you know, the anthropologists aren't around, this is what they look like. Missionary families don't quite look like this anymore. Uh, they did at one time, and that was the time they lived in. But it looks more like this now. Missionaries working very closely with nationals, you know, and everybody's in this mix together and praying together. It's very much of a global view. So, you know, for 200 years, mission looked like that. It really was kind of a, a west to the rest movement. And that's not saying other countries weren't sending missionaries, but by and large, from you know, from about 1790s up until 2000, it was roughly just like that. But now it looks more like that. Missions is from everyone to everywhere, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But missions is not one direction anymore. God's word is just going all over the earth right now in amazing ways, in amazing directions, in unpredictable ways. So, how did we get there? I'm going to start with Pentecost just real quickly, and I see you guys did too. Very good. <laughs> uh, what happened at Pentecost? Something happened there that is a huge clue of what God's plan, ultimate plan is. Something happened at Pentecost that I think is bigger than we even realize a lot of us today. And at the time, they, the uh, disciples certainly didn't understand what was going on with Pentecost. But you remember that event, right? Because, you know, it's Passover and people come in from all over the place. And you have to rent a house or room uh, near the temple courtyard and you have to have the ceremony. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples. And after he was gone, they did the same thing. So they have a room that's right next to the temple courts. And they're sitting in there and you know the story. And they're kind of dejected. Actually, they're very dejected because they're going like, well, what are we going to do now? Uh, and then that's when the Holy Spirit uh, descends, and they start speaking in all these languages. But the part that we don't really get when you read it in the Bible, because it's it's kind of a summary of the event, they actually, when that event happened, we don't know how many was in the room, by the way. It was more than just the, you know, 11 apostles. It was a, There was a lot of disciples in that room. We just don't know how many. But when the Holy Spirit descended and everybody started speaking these languages, they got up, they went out of the room, and they walked out into the courtyard, and they were doing what in all these languages? What were they doing? Preaching, witnessing, what else? Praising God. Yeah, so what's going on here? They're out there, and all of a sudden, all these languages are being used to preach, to praise, to pronounce God. Uh, God's arrival, and all the people in the courtyard are hearing it, and they hear their language. So they're from all over the area. They're all over the Mediterranean. They came from Persia and Arabia and Somalia and Egypt and North Africa and probably, you know, uh, who knows where, maybe Italy. But it was a Middle Eastern uh, religion at the time. So all these converts, it's their language, 
and their culture, and they rush over because they hear their language and they're really excited about it. And, you know, the story, oh, you guys are drunk and everything, and no, you can't be drunk, it's only 9 o'clock, we get drunk in the morning, we get drunk in the evening. Uh, you know, and the amazing thing is God was proclaiming his word in every culture and language in that area at the time. And that was an amazing event. That's a hint of something bigger that was to come, something very big. It kind of tells us about Revelation 7-9, which says, before the throne, this big celebration, people from every tribe, nation, country, language, is before the throne, worshiping God, and there's this amazing hallelujah party going on. Was that an accident? Is that... Oh, a, a, a second thought that God had. Well, let's let's just get everybody. You know, there, here's Pentecost happening on a large scale in heaven in Revelation seven nine, when Christ returns and everything is done. Uh, but it didn't happen naturally. And here's a key I want you guys to think about today. It the gospel was spread through forced coercion. It's like. Yeah, wow, all these people are praising God in their own language. That's nice. Well, let's just go back and just stick with the Jews. You know, God's going like, did you not see this crazy, amazing illustration I just gave you? The gospel has just gone out to, uh, you know, a few dozen languages in a few dozen countries, and we're just going to hang around Jerusalem. You know, God had to force them out. He had to force people to leave and start going out to the ethne. Now, the ethne, you probably heard this before, it's just a Jewish term that means non-Jew. They just refer to there's Jewish and then there's non-Jewish. That was it. Ethne, according to the Aramaic use, meant all those heathen nations. And that's the terms that's translated from the Aramaic that Jesus used, and that's the term that they said. They're going, okay, the ethne, right, well, we're just going to hang around with the Jews. No, but God, you know, the persecution came, they were forced out. So a bunch of Christians were down in uh, Syria, modern-day Syria, and the Goths came over from Eastern Europe, and they raided modern-day Syria, and they grabbed a bunch of Christians, and they hauled them back to their house, and uh, their homes, I mean. And they had a little young guy named Wolfinus there, little wolf, and uh, he ended up growing up learning the language, and he translated the Hebrew Bible into their language. And all of a sudden, the Bible starts to spread. But he wasn't there intentionally. He was abducted. It's not a good way to go, you know, if you can avoid it. Uh, but this is forced spreading. So just really quickly, as a result of this f- spreading that's gone over all the earth right now, uh, this Sunday there are more Chinese believers in church than in all of Europe and North America. There are more a- Anglicans are attending church in African countries than in England. In Seoul, Korea, more people are attending in one megachurch, attending church in one megachurch than all of the major denominational churches in North America. The largest congregation in all of Europe is in Kiev, Ukraine, and is pastored by a Nigerian. Brazil, South Korea, and India are among the top missionary sending countries ahead of the United States, which is ranked number nine. So that's where we've come today. It's a global mission. The church, as that graphic uh, showed, is people going in all sorts of directions from everyone to everywhere. 
And there are thousands of people serving as missionaries in North America. They're here for the express purpose of bringing the gospel to Americans. And they come from Ethiopia and Nigeria and Brazil and China and Korea. And they're back uh, missionizing, evangelizing North America. That's the times we live in. So I don't know what that tells you, but it tells me one kind of big thing, that the gospel has gone throughout the whole earth and it is affecting everybody in a variety of ways. So how did we get here? I'm going to back up now because we just went and gave you the quick picture of where we are. But how did we get here? I love to talk about Revelation 7-9 because it is an amazing event of every person, tribe, nation is represented at the throne. Uh, In the beginning, in Genesis, there were not thousands of people in cultures. There was one culture. And uh, there was one group of people. Actually, there was one couple called Adam and Eve. And what did God tell them? Go out. Populate the earth, spread, grow, increase. Now, you know, we had this little problem called the fall, and uh, God's plan was for them to go out. But as they went out, it was a little harder this time because they had to do the work, you know, suffer in childbirth, dig ditches, misery. Nevertheless, they had to go, and they did start going. And then people started intermarrying. And then they started spreading. And then when you get more and more people, uh, you kind of lose contact with each other. And you start developing a little bit different. Your language changes a little bit. And you start noticing, you know, you take on new cultural habits. But the spreading was happening. And this was the beginning of God's plan, I believe, for Revelation 7-9. He was starting to create diversity. But remember the old problem? People don't like to spread. They like the cluster. So what happened? People of the earth started spreading, and they spread around the Mesopotamian Valley. So that would be, you know, my wife's the Old Testament geography specialist, so I'm probably going to blow it here. But uh, Mesopotamian Valley is kind of that Iraq, Iran uh, area there. And that's where most of the people of the earth were. And what did they do? They stopped spreading. They just said, we're going to stay right here. We're not moving. And what happens? The population kept increasing, but they wouldn't move out. And the population got to the point where murder started happening. You know, people started getting angry. All sorts of sin was happening. It was so bad, literally so bad, that God had to wipe the slate and start all over. That's pretty amazing to me. It was that bad. But they weren't doing what he said, spread throughout the earth. So when they did have the flood and the flood ended, Noah and his sons were there. God says it again. It's like a restart. Okay, guys, come on. Spread, spread. Get out there. Multiply. So they started doing it. And you read in Genesis that after a while, they start referring to the languages of the coastal areas and the languages of the interior. There's these vague references to different kinds of languages now. So what happened was people had no more contact with each other, so the languages start to form. And then they can't talk to each other super well, but 
they still had a common language, apparently, because then Babel happens. Now, Babel is, I don't know, to me it's kind of a misunderstood story. A lot of people think uh, that, you know, God confused the languages as a curse. Uh, but I don't see that when I read the whole Bible narrative. Basically, uh, they were not spreading, and they were congregating, and they had one common language, but there were other languages. And because they could communicate with each other, the same pattern started happening. They started getting full of themselves, building these towers, trying to show independence, that we're great, we're grand, because they were so close. And when you have people in that close proximity, you have a lot of creativity, by the way, and innovation going on, but it often goes the wrong direction. So God said... He just spread them. We don't know how, but he just spread them. He said, get out of here, and he just messed them up, and he moved them out. And over a long period of time, it says he confused their tongues. Uh, I think it was a really long period when that happened, but essentially, as they were forced away from each other, your language starts to change, and you can't talk to each other anymore. So God's back on his job of creating more diversity, more languages. You know, in the island of New Guinea, there's about 1,500 languages. And these are distinct languages. That means people can't talk to each other. And that island's only the size of California and about part of Oregon. How did they have developed 1,500 languages? Well, they fought and split. They got an argument, and they went to this valley, or the other one went to this valley. They stopped talking, and pretty soon they're, they're, your language changed, and they developed a different language. And over thousands of years, more languages, more languages. So God's creating diversity. He just keeps doing it. So throughout the ages, God was doing this. He was spreading people throughout the earth as they separated and couldn't talk. They developed new cultures, new ways of expressing things, uh, new cultural values. No, not, of, not all of them were good, of course. Uh, you know, sin kind of messed things up. But there were a lot of good cultural traits that were being developed. But suddenly, by the time of Pentecost, the world has thousands of languages and cultures, and people are all over the globe by the time of Pentecost. If they're literally everywhere in North America, on the islands, on the Pacific Islands, the world is populated. God finished what he was doing in creating diversity in all over the globe. The, peop- the, the spread of, the, of, of cultures had come to a climax. And that's when Pentecost happens. So these guys don't know that. They're like, oh, my gosh, we've got to go out and evangelize. 25 ethnies around the Mediterranean? Yeah, I guess we could do that. They had no idea how big the task was. They had no idea of the diversity of cultures that already covered the earth by that time. So it's no surprise. And that's when Jesus came to heaven, by the way, when the spreading and their creation and the diversity was completed. That's when Christ arrived, when God came to earth and formed a man. Do you realize the significance of that? Okay, I'm done here. I got all the beautiful diversity I want. Now I'm going to come. I'm going to bring the gospel. I'm going to bring people back to God. And that gospel of love and salvation and forgiveness and joy is going to start going out. It's going to go and cover this entire world. Because remember, God's plan is Revelation 7-9. So now he's starting it. What happened? They said, yeah, we're not going to go. Yeah, it's too much. So God starts forcing them out. And then about 60 A.D., 
you know, people start saying, hey, where's this coming? Where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything's gone on as it has since the beginning of creation. They were scoffing. Yeah, he's not coming back. You guys are losers. There is no, you know, there's no, he was just a man. He's not coming back. Look, it's been 60 years. Where's this coming? Maybe they forgot what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He goes, you know, the gospel would be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here's the confusion they had. Well, it's been 60 years. The gospel's been preached all over the Mediterranean. So we're done. How come Christ hasn't returned? See, they didn't see that huge job before them. And so I'm not surprised that people were kind of, you know, scoffing because they didn't understand the big picture. And we never do. God sees it. Is that, we get that today. How many people in the United States and North America believe Christ is going to return and bring a closure to things? How many people really believe that these days? How many people in here actually believe that's going to happen still? All right, well, you know, come on. You guys are sharp. Well taught. But really, if you look at Barner Research, it's gotten to the point where, yeah, you know, we believe in God. Yeah, we believe in church. Yeah, we're not sure, sure about the Trinity. Second coming, yeah, that's, yeah, who knows what that is. Uh, you know, there's people have totally forgotten that there's finality in God's mission, and they have asleep at the switch right now or the helm, or whatever metaphor you want to use. They're asleep at it because they don't think it's really going to happen. Or when it happens, we really don't know. You know, some of us you go, used to go to Calvary Chapel on Wednesday nights, you know, Chuck Smith. I know Jim and Debbie went. We'd go there. And I remember Pastor Chuck saying like a week ahead of time that he's going to be talking about the second coming of Christ. And somehow that got into the newspapers that Pastor Chuck is going to tell us when the second coming is, the date. I'm serious. It got into the L.A. Times. So when I got in my car in Garden Grove and I was driving over there, I, I couldn't even get close to the church. The, the off-ramp on the 405 was, or the 5 was, backed up. And I was, got, I was going, is there a big event going on? Is there something, Angel Stadium? Or what, you know, what, what's going on? And I finally got up. Then I got to, you know, Calvary Chapel and I couldn't even park in the parking lot. I had to go across the street. I couldn't get into the sanctuary. That's how many people came in to hear Pastor Chuck say, this is when the second coming is. Wow, were they disappointed. <laughs> he said, I, I never said that. I don't know how that got the paper. I'm just going to talk about the signs of the times of when he's coming. And he taught about, no, the signs of the times. That's all he did. And then, of course, at that time, in the 70s, we didn't know as much as we know now, so he was pretty sure Christ was going to return before his death, and we pretty much believe that, too. Of course, you got Hal Lindsey wrote, like, Great Planet Earth, and, uh, you know, all these guys were like, this is it, man, we are so close, Russia's, you know, is Antichrist, and now, you, now let's fast forward 30 years later, and we're going, no, no, it's not that at all, but I think we have better signs that we really are in the end times now, in the last days, and possibly the last phase of missions. We have far greater signs than, you know, Russia and Magog and all that terms I learned back when I was young. 
uh, and forgot promptly. <laughs> now, uh, we really are in the very last stages. How do we know? So Pentecost, we already talked about, 33 A.D. God kick-started things and had to be in every language and culture and had to spread. We know that. So it started happening. God has been spreading his mission, not because of our, you know, our bravery to go out, but he forces us out. He forced me to go to the missions field by giving me a job in a cubicle in the county of Orange. See? And then I, I sat there going like, this is it? I said, God, no, I'm just going to make you want to go. <laughs> you know, I, all of a sudden, like, I can't be a bureaucrat. i got to get out of here. So he sent me to Honduras, and then I ended up in Indonesia. He makes people go because it's not our inclination to spread the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to do it. Always remember that. But he does make you willing to go, thankfully. Uh, so it's great. Pentecost happens. The gospel's spreading. Everything's going good. Everything's going according to God's plan. Then 451, the year 451, by the way, Council of Chalcedon happens. Now, why is that significant? Well, the church had gotten pretty powerful around the Mediterranean. The Coptic church, the Orthodox church, you know, Alexandria, Rome, you know, uh, Turkey. The church is pretty powerful now. And what do they do? Well, they got full of themselves, and they had a council, among other things, and they argued about the Trinity. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, and they had a little split about how you interpret the Trinity. Everybody believed there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how you interpret which that really means kind of formed the church in the West and the church in the East. So that was a huge split. So we ended up with, you know, the Orthodox Church, Ethiopian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, then, we have, then the Roman Church, and we're really the Western Church. Uh, I really kind of like the way they looked at the Trinity, but we won't get into that. <laughs> but what happened was they said, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to be a monolithic church now. You have to learn our language. You have to learn, uh, you know, Amharic, if you're Egypt. You have to learn Latin, or you have to learn one of the major church denominational languages to be fully a Christian. And by the way, you have to start looking and acting like us uh, to be fully Christian. So what happened was they started fighting against what God was trying to do, was create this amazing diversity so people be worshiping him, worshiping him in every language and culture. And they started coming back in and saying, no, worship him through our language, our one language, our one culture. And you know what the result of that was? The Dark Ages. <laughs> wow, another what? thousand years, people were just like in darkness. Patrick, you know, St. Patrick, who was abducted by Norwegian guys, these dudes, grabbed them and used them as a slave in Ireland. And then he starts really getting into the Irish culture. And then later when he's freed, he comes back voluntarily. See, God, again, sent a forced, you know, you're going to be a slave. You're going to find out about the Irish, the Celtic culture. You're going to love them. You're going to love their culture and their Celtic language. And Patrick did. And he came back, and he was, a, he was a missionary that was highlighting their culture, their language, and knowing God through, through who you are and how God made you. And then Rome called him back and said, stop doing that. They have to learn Latin. They have to become Roman if they're going to become a Christian. That's what happened. Why does man do this? I don't know. God, you know, God's in control, but I'd be like, a thousand years, really? That's... 
God was doing something. So 1791, this handsome young man here named William Carey, you guys probably heard of him. He's a famous guy. He's kind of the father of modern missions. But he wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to go and be a missionary. And he was a Baptist in London. And believe it or not, the Baptists were not into missions in those days. Uh, hard to imagine, isn't it? What? It's like, in fact, in those days, nobody was into missions because they had become denominationalized and institutionalized. And as the missiologist Andrew Wall said, they became self-regarding, inward-looking, and started spending more money on themselves. You know, so here's William. He's going like, nah, this can't be. I'm reading the same Bible as you, but I think we're supposed to go out. And, and nobody would send him out. So he formed his own 501c3 nonprofit. And that was the birth of the parachurch movement. See, God was going, we got to get on with our work. But the church is not doing it. The official church, when I say church, I mean the, you know, official church with trained seminarians and pastors, no offense here. It's good to be trained and seminarian. But the official church said, we'll, we'll run things now and the rest of you just tithe and pray and be good parishioners. Uh, and God's going, no, 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 no can't do that. You're not spreading the gospel again. Can you imagine? He's just kind of going, you know, God's just going, what is wrong with these people? So William goes out, forms his own organization. And this is in my book, by the way, not to plug, shamelessly plug my book, but I do give a narrative of this, the start of the parachurch movement. The start of the parachurch movement happened because the church was failing its duty to get out of its comfort zone, to stop regarding itself and get the gospel out. So it was voluntary movement for 200 years. It was a student movement, a voluntary movement. These are guys, they were radical according to the church. They worked on the fringe. They were innovative. They tried new ideas. It was a free association. And the donors, major donors, were behind it from the very beginning because they sought to, we're, not, we're wasting our money on the official church. We're going to fund these guys. So that was the start of the modern church movement. It just it went out over all the earth for 200 years then, yeah, well, you know, after a while, the denominational churches went, hey, hey, we, we got to get on the action. You know, we got to get out there too. So, you know, denominational churches finally jumped in and they went out and they started planting denominational churches. But it was still that monolithic church. And believe me, there was a lot of really good happened through denominational church planting. Don't get me wrong. A lot of good. Uh, Presbyterians, Methodists, you know, they all formed for very good reasons. They were addressing some issue. They were addressing some sort of uh, indoctrinal imbalance. So most denominations started for very good reasons. It's when they became institutionalized, they kind of forgot why they started. Or the thing they were working on was better, and they didn't know what else to do because they were institutionalized. But they did start going out and planting churches and having missions, and then, you know, colonial period happened. But it was 200 years of this Western expansion of mostly volunteers going out, people who raised their own support and individuals who supported them. And that's how really how Gloria and I even started, uh, you know, in the early 80s, raising our own support, getting out there. No official church sent us. We had church who was blessing us and sending us. We had churches who were partnering with us. But do you see what that thing was? That was this, that was this loose association of people who just want to get the work done. Uh, and that's what happened for 200 years. But what happens now, right? 200 years. What's happened to the parachurch? This is in my book. 
what happens, what have we seen throughout history? The parachurch kind of got inward-looking, institutionalized, organized, started making rules, and now we see the parachurch is in decline right now. And I say the parachurch, and this is tough, Chris, Wycliffe is in decline. Uh, Pioneer Bible translators, they would say we're not, but I, they're not growing. I mean, I could list them all, and I love them all. I know, I've, I interact with a lot of parachurch organizations. I love them all. But they're all in the same place. They've plateaued, and they haven't moved on. They're stuck. And no, what are the donors doing? They're going, we're not, we're not giving to this anymore. You guys are too institutionalized, too self-regarding. You lost your creativity. We're going to start giving money now directly to Africans and Asians and Indians and Pacific people and Latin Americans. So now you see the donors, who I believe as God used, has used throughout history to keep missions moving, to rattle it up. And missionaries don't like that when donors come along and say, you're ineffective, I'm moving my money. That's a hard thing to hear. Now, I get that. But that's what they've done for a long time, and I think God's behind that. So now, in, in 2016, the donors are starting to bypass the parachurch, and they don't really give much to the denominational church. They keep the lights on. That's it, and a little extra. And the parachurch, uh, it's flat. I work with a lot of parachurch organizations. They're going, how can we raise more support? Uh, reinvent, change, get out of yourselves, <laughs> do something new. You'll attract giving then. Be, you know, Keep the gospel fresh and going out. So this is the time we live in now. Uh, we've arrived to this time in, in history where uh, the gospel is everywhere. It's going everywhere. The church is everywhere. The church is pretty much in every place on earth. That doesn't mean it's having huge effect. So, you know, when Gloria and I went to Arian Jaya, Indonesia, there was a, a missions professor who wrote a book called Jerusalem to Arian Jaya, the uttermost part of the earth. Did anybody ever read that? No, I'm sure. <laughs> it was a great book, and we were going to Arian Jaya, and I'm calling you out. Yeah, right. You look back now at Arian Jaya, and what do we see 30 years later? There's hundreds of Bibles, uh, New Testaments and Old Testament scriptures been planted. There's hundreds of seminaries. There's thousands of churches. Uh, this is the uttermost part of the world has been reached. It's pretty much saturated with the gospel now. Uh, so where's that last place? So Ruth, you know, Professor Ruth kind of got it right. Irian was the most distant physically from Jerusalem, which I thought was pretty cool when we went. But she missed. The people weren't that distant from God, as distant from God. Animist people don't like their religion. You know, it's just negative placating evil spirits. That's all you do all day long. When they found out about the gospel of grace and freedom, man, they just ran to it. It was, you know, it was easy. Translate the Bible in their language, they read it. Man, we want that. We don't hate, we hate our religion. See, so they were already close to God. They knew what they lacked, and they responded. So the last group, really, the most distant from God are the major religions, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu. And, well, Judaism, that's a whole other topic. Those are the last unreached groups on the planet now. Now, God's reaching them uh, in really uh, amazing and fun ways. Surge, indigenous stage, global missions. 60 to 87, huge surge. 
And this is where we've ended up now. This is where the Christians live today. The darker color, the more Christians. The lighter color, the fewer. The gray color, almost none. Interesting, huh? Bible translation. Since 1800s, and this is old. This is like almost 1990. Look at the surge in the number of Bible translations happening. So God is like, all of a sudden, he's in hyper gear. He is, because the church has spread all over the earth. So I remember the beginning. First, he created, he caused people to spread over the earth. Then he made 7,000 languages and thousands of unique cultures. So he finished creating beautiful diversity. And then at Pentecost, he started spreading his gospel throughout the earth. And now in 2016, a little over 2,000 years, the gospel has gone pretty much throughout the earth. And it's getting into every language and culture. So Bible translations, people are praising and worshiping God in what language? Their language. They're praising and worshiping God in their language according to their cultural understanding of who Christ is. It's not worshiping God the way American understands him. They're worshiping God the way they see it in their culture. And that doesn't mean it's something completely different. You know, theologically, it's universal. We have a common understanding of who Christ is. But when you start reading books about the Dalit, you know, the downtrodden of India, and as Christians, how they praise and worship God, you're blessed when you read the insights of a downtrodden person, low-caste person who becomes a Christian. When you read how they worship God, you get blessed. When you read how a Thai person understands God, a Christian, you get blessed. And this is what I've started doing years ago. I started wanting to read, well, who are these people? How do they view Christ? And as I started reading all their stories, I was shocked. I was so enriched by their insights and the beauty of their understanding of who Christ is. So we found out Revelation 7-9 is like this close to us right now. It's there. It's, it's in shape. We're, we're there. So why hasn't he come back? Where is he? This is the church today. It's thousands of languages and cultures worshiping God just like that little example we got in the day of Pentecost uh, in the temple courtyard. Pretty cool. So here's the situation now in 2016, then we'll stop. In 1900, language developing every century. End of World War, it doubled every 25 years. Now knowledge is doubling every 13 months. Soon it will double every 12 hours. Knowledge is key. I mean, for those of us who grew up without the Internet, and then we had the Internet, and now we see what the Internet is doing, it's mind-boggling. Every time I have a question, and I'm a very inquisitive person, I mean, you'd be amazed what I'm looking up half the time. I'll just sit there, gee, I wonder... How fast a swallow flies when they migrate? I'm going to ask Google. Ask Siri. Boom, there's the answer. This is what they mean by knowledge. And now an Internet penetration is penetrated the earth. Now, yeah, when I say this at mission conferences, people always go, that's not my area. We have lousy web connection. I'm going, okay, yeah, it hasn't penetrated northeast corner of Nagaland where Gloria goes and works every now and then. But most, by and large, it's out there, and people are jumping on the Internet, and they're understanding what's going on, and suddenly knowledge is common. And the whole earth knows stuff that's happening. When it happens, immediately everybody knows. 
and people are getting really smart, and the spreading has stopped, and we're getting a common language because now you know, about 40% of the earth speaks English, believe it or not. Uh, now we have common languages, and I'm getting kind of nervous here because we're starting to become a world that looks like uh, Tower of Babel again because we're unifying, and what happens when you unify? Yeah, great things happen, but evil increases too. Because now you got proximity. So a lot of, you know, we're in a really interesting time right now. That's where we're at. I, I just want to thank God. I mean, let's thank him. Think about it. We get to live in a time where we're seeing his mission this close to complete. And the, only, and the biggest sign is Revelation 7-9 and what we see in the world today. The rest of that stuff, you know, who's, you know, who's the Antichrist? I uh, Prelim, you know, premillennial, post. I don't know any of that stuff. I just know we're that close. The so second hour, we're going to be diving into what is God doing now, and I believe the final stage of missions. What is He doing? It's going to be fun. We're going to look at some a few slides. Uh, you might have a few ooh-ahs, and we're going to talk. So, thank you so much for this time. And again, we're done. <laughs>